0: to another episode of the SADM Rams Ask a Chair podcast series. My name is Hamza Ejaz. I will be your host today. And today I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Sadev Mandirada, who is a department chair at the University of Tennessee. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Hamza. Definitely. Let's talk about your interest in emergency medicine. What drew you to our specialty
1: in the beginning? So initially I went to medical school wanting to help people. I think kind of like what we all do. I very quickly became aware that emergency medicine is the only place where we have access to all patients in all walks of life. So it was the social aspects so that really drew me to emergency medicine, caring for those people who had no one to care for them at all. And also the acuity variety of diseases were always very appealing 20 years ago, and, and now we've had a transition to where we really have a vital role to serve not just our patients, but also be a navigator within an increasingly complex healthcare system.
0: All right. And now you've been practicing for the last 20 years, care take, what continues to still keep you motivated and engaged in our specialty? Oh, it's absolutely patient care.
1: It's Patients are what we do. And I think we lose that so much where we go to work, especially as an administrator, talking about metrics or faculty development plans or different educational chores that we have to do. But really the magic of what we do is to make a human being who's having the worst day of their life and make them a little bit better.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the important thing to never lose sight of, and it's great to hear that you haven't lost sight of that either. We've been in niches that we develop, ultrasound, toxicology, med ed, admin, and operations, but we all initially came to that specialty to help people, and it's what we do at the bedside that still holds us true to the specialty, and it's, it's important to never lose sight of that as well. And I, it's, it's glad to hear that with your various leadership roles that you're still engaged and you are still love that aspect of, it, of our specialty
1: as well. Absolutely. I actually continue to work night shifts on a regular basis. Uh, usually three or four per month, so happy to help out my crew, but also that is the real front lines of of healthcare in this country is night shift emergency medicine. Yeah, that's pretty
0: cavalier being a department chair. and working night shifts that frequently, but it's spot
1: on. Again, that's where the magic happens.
0: Yeah, that's true. Let's now transition a little bit to some of your other leadership roles. Uh, I believe you currently serve as the president for the Tennessee chapter of ASAP. Can you talk a little bit about why it's important to be
1: involved in national organized emergency medicine? Absolutely. So organized emergency medicine is something that one of my mentors got me into almost 15 years ago. Number one, you develop relationships and meaningful connection with like-minded individuals. And I think that's really very special. Here at this meeting, currently at AACEM, I have a group of like-minded individuals, the smartest people, most dynamic individuals in my entire field, I get to spend a week with. And it's the same way when I go to my regional meetings, my national meetings, and local meetings, and whatever your niche is. So I started out in education as a program director, really enjoyed working with the ASAP Education Committee, and was fortunate enough to chair that during a fairly challenging year. I was able to interact very briefly with Matthew Conte's agent, which was pretty exciting. But the networking and connection that you have with other individuals, you make lifelong friends. In residency and medical school, you make also lifelong friends, and these are additional connections that you'll have for your entire career. So absolutely, you have to be involved in organized medicine because that's the voice of leadership. Now, we may not always agree with every aspect of every organization. And the listeners know uh, exactly what organizations that they may want to belong in. And I think it's just important to find your place and get engaged, get involved. Volunteer on a committee to start with. Even if you say, I don't really have a lot to offer. Yes, you do. The perspective of a young physician or the perspective of an academic superstar in the future, that is very, very valuable because we need those minds to help shape the future of emergency medicine. Listen, I think we are at a, a bit of an inflection point. A lot of us have, have seen some of the recent data, and I think we have to just realize that the next generation of leaders is what's going to change and fix emergency medicine.
0: Yeah, I think it's important to keep that in mind where – if you're not involved, it's hard to have your voice heard as pronounced, and it's important to get that level of networking and mentorship across a specialty, across the country, regardless of whichever organization you end up belonging to, well, as residents, students, faculty, belong to multiple organizations, but it's important that you mentioned finding that home, and so that conversation and finding that level of mentorship, so now that we are, as you mentioned, at that inflection point, where. Preparing for with the insight of the input with the input of the the junior members of our specialty so that they can shape the direction of where we go in the next 15, 20
1: years from now. Absolutely.
0: Now let's talk a little bit more of uh, about let's talk a little bit more about your roles as a chair in terms of what do you find
1: to be the most rewarding aspect of being a chair as well as the most difficult or challenging part of being a chair. So the most rewarding part of being a chair is meaningful human connection with extraordinary faculty members residents and medical students and staff I get to be a leader in an department that is completely filled with individuals who are passionate dedicated intelligent and are making a difference in our community and the broader scientific community and and the educational realms and opening doors for those individuals and listening and understanding what their needs are and then attempting to elevate in the best pathways or come up with a novel pathway to allow them to succeed is absolutely the most rewarding part of being a chair. It's escalating a team of people who are superstars.
0: And now the, the inverse of that, what do you find to be the most difficult or challenging
1: part of your role? I, I think the most challenging part of the, of the role of chair is reconciling the fundamental ideology that we have, that we want to make a difference in the world, that we want to learn and lead and excel in education and research and deliver the highest quality of patient care, and reconcile that with the current practice environment, with emergency department reporting and crowding, rooted in fundamental reimbursement rules. We have a long chasm that we have to bridge. And that's the hardest part about being a chair, is that reconciliation between where our moral compass points us and where our reality holds us currently. And it's hard. I think as a chair, sometimes we have to learn to build resilience with our own teams, but also change the fundamental systems that impact our wellness. That is really the most challenging part of being a chair is how do we change the rules so we can better serve our patients and our learners?
0: Yeah. I feel like one of the hardest things about being a leader is that culture change or that change that mindset or change management in general. I like can talk about this in MBA classes with leadership courses as well, as well as in countless leadership books. If you want to read, that, if you read those as well, like the conversation, like how do you go about changing the mindset or the culture, the behavior of with whatever the challenge is, like how do you go about changing essentially, making change or impacting change. And I think at being, you know, having talked to numerous shares at this point now, that's something that's very uh, synonymous as well, and I think that's very similar to a lot of challenges that shares face, where it's you have all these superstars in different niches that they've developed, but then the economic, financial restra- restraints of, or some of the re- political restraints of in an academic institution – there's so many different variables to factor in, but I think how do you manage all of those rock star and the superstar clinicians as well as academicians and steer them towards a change or moving the direction of your
1: department and strategically that you want to be in the next five years, six years, etc. Absolutely. And as you alluded to, obviously, there are dozens of great books out there on change management, uh, some great articles that are very easy to read. I think there's actually a selection in Chess Magazine, which we could probably reference in this uh podcast as well. But we have an opportunity to to lead change. Step one for me is to listen. I need to understand what the overarching values and ideologies are of the faculty that I'm leading. And if I don't understand them where they're at, we can't go in unison together to build a consensus, which would be step two. Oftentimes that's step one in change management, but we have to build a consensus. And you build a consensus through listening and understanding. And this includes hospital administrators classically known as the enemy. Now, not necessarily including healthcare care insurers in this conversation quite yet, but I think we have an opportunity to better understand all of our perceived adversaries because we're all on the same page fundamentally. We want to deliver patient care. So after we listen and understand and build a consensus, then I think it's important to understand the rules governing what is actually happening. And this is where I think formal mentorship, leadership training, Sometimes lets you down a little bit because it takes time to understand how one hospital system through the medical executive committee, through policies, and procedures, through governance boards, boards of directors, how it actually works. But once you figure out, okay, this person's on a policy committee, and this group of individuals help with salaries, this group is, is held to this financial board, and once we better understand that structure, then you can start to navigate. Now, I don't want to use the word play the game. You just have to be consistent in your message that you've heard from your faculty. For me and my faculty, it's leading social change in our small southern community. We can solve homelessness in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and it's the work of our faculty that have done that through multi-million dollars' worth of grants, which you would think a small department wouldn't be able to accomplish, but we have significant engagement with our city and county governments, with our state legislatures, and community stakeholders and nonprofits. So I think communication and understanding and listening is the first step to make quality change.
0: Yeah, that, that's a great point you're making there. If you don't listen, then whatever change you might suggest or implement might have been rooted in the false pretenses. You know, in the first place, though, it's really important that you mentioned that that it's really important to listen and then subsequently try to build that concept. Because otherwise, if you go about it the wrong way, you might get an end product that doesn't actually align with what you're, the people that you're working with. One in the first place. I, you alluded to earlier uh, a comment about we're nearing the inflection point or we're at the inflection point regarding our specialty. So let's dive a little bit deeper into that and let's talk about both the 2020 workforce report predicting a surplus of physicians by 2030 for emergency medicine, as well as the recent mass results in terms of having over 500 unfilled EM spots. Let's talk about the workforce report first and let's get your thoughts on what that entailed and. What is your interpretation
1: there? Sure. The 2020 M mm-hmm. Workforce report, which is published by uh, ACEP or ASAP, um, was very well researched. ASAP spent quite a bit of money on it. A lot of great people really worked very hard on this, and it was the best amount. At the time, it was the best uh, interpretation of the available data that we had using industry standard predictive models. And I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that the data that we used for this in the 2020 report we were on the cusp of a pandemic and there is now a quote, new normal. Well, this is just normal. This is what it's going to be now. So I think the 2020 report gives us a little bit of a glimpse in the future if we had not had some of the challenges presented to us by the pandemic. And I do think that some of the confounding factors as we look at the match, we have this 2020 report, which was not extraordinarily reassuring for a young graduate. And then we had a situation where our healthcare heroes in 2020 and 2021, we're now exhausted, overworked emergency physicians in overcrowded departments. Where we see on the front lines of the healthcare system, the canary in the coal mine, I think is the analogy that a lot of my peers have used in that New England Journal op ed, that emergency medicine, we are seeing the fundamental cracks in the foundation of the American healthcare system. I think that what we Our messaging to our medical students is we as faculty sometimes feel uncertain, but I want to offer a lot of reassurance though. I am 1000% certain that the practice of emergency medicine is going to be different in 5, 10, 15, 20 years than it is today. And I'm confident that someone listening to this podcast right now is going to have an idea that is going to be an innovation that is going to transform how we deliver emergency care and acute care in this country. We know our path is not sustainable. Now it's time for us to double down on our efforts to say, how do we fix these issues? How do we work together with a unified voice to advocate for our patients? Because they're the ones that are really suffering the most in an overcrowded emergency department with overworked nursing staffs.
0: Yeah, I think that that's the difficult thing about the workforce report. No one could have predicted this pandemic in terms of how monumental it was going to be for the workforce the staffing, the boarding issues that we've faced over the last few years. And we very quickly went from being healthcare heroes, as you mentioned, to having news articles that paint us in a very negative light more recently. And our students are in tune to some of those, to some of those news articles and journal articles as well and having some level of uncertainty about what the specialty holds. But it's very reassuring to hear that you know, it's our specialty will continue to be strong. We are reaching some level of an inflection point right now where we are facing some challenges appropriately so that I'm not trying to get false reassurance, but we intentionally be trying to make that change about our specialty that the next 15, 20 years that these students who are listening right now will be practicing it for the duration of their careers can make that change. That's going to be beneficial in the long run. And yet yeah, <clears throat> we do have some work to do in our specialty to make it better than where it is today, but we have a very robust group of leaders within our specialty across our various different organizations who are having these conversations and, provide that level of mentorship to the junior faculty, to the residents, and to the students about what emergency medicine is and some of the issues of where the myth is, where the fact is, where the fiction is to figure out, hey, these are the true issues facing our specialty. So then when the students are making their decisions about to apply or not to apply to emergency medicine, they know what they're getting themselves into. And I think prior to the pandemic, emergency medicine, very competitive, a lot of students applying it. And it continues to be a competitive specialty, maybe not to the same level that it was before. But I think I want to reassure the listeners as well as the students and the residents as well in the sense that the clinical aspect of what we do, why we came to the specialty, the passion for being at the bedside, taking care of patients on the worst day, that's going to hold true regardless in terms of that mission itself of providing that emergent care. What geographical or distribution of what square foot of the hospital that gets practiced in obviously is currently being challenged in how we're practicing and where exactly we're practicing emergency medicine. Some of those are constraints that we're facing due to some of the operational issues of the of overall the healthcare system that emergency medicine is facing, unfortunately. But it's reassuring to know that there's members at the national level who are working to have this conversation so that we can move the needle and optimize and enhance the patient
1: experience, the patient care, as well as physician experience while providing that clinical care in the ED. Oh, 100%. You know, as long as we continue to practice with our with our minds, which requires that rigorous training bar as we've seen in the past and we will continue to see in the future. We also have to practice to our hearts too. We have to realize that the constraints by square footage or a curtain here or there or accessibility of any sort of some support staff here or there, we have to realize that we're on the front lines of medicine. We're going to do the very best with what we have. And that's where emergency medicine is. It's a group of innovators, of very resilient innovators. And that's where we really need to, again, double down on that energy. And I'm confident that residents and medical students now will have a unique perspective, blending whether it's different communication modalities, uh, how we interface with patients, how we interface with some of our larger stakeholders like payers or pharmaceutical companies, how do we actually deliver healthcare in a non-traditional healthcare system model to populations that are previously disenfranchised, whether it's an an urban population we just can't penetrate to or a rural population, which there's still significant need for quality emergency physicians in rural markets. In terms of now the
0: other side of this, of the inflection point, in terms of the recent match results that we were alluding to, over 500 unfilled spots in nursing medicine prior to, the, prior to the SOAP. What factors do you think played a role in leading us to that outcome? I'm sure the workforce report was one of the variables that students probably considered or one of the factors that led to this outcome. But I want to get your thoughts in terms of what do you think got us to hear in terms of having over 500 full spots? Sure. Well,
1: number one, I think we have uh, fewer applicants and more spots. I think that is, is just simple math. Fewer applicants, yes, some people may have been uh, scared away by the workforce report, uh, and that's understandable. We saw this happen in anesthesia decades ago. So we've kind of been through this in the, in the house of medicine. I'm learning a lot from my anesthesia colleagues about the ebb and flow. But we also have to be cautious again, about independent practice for advanced practice providers. Physician assistants or physician assistants. We have to be active, as we mentioned too earlier, in our organized medical societies to be able to make sure that the legislative lines are not redrawn around finances, that the lines are drawn around patient care and high-quality patient care of a physician-led team. So I think that the, there is a lot of different perceptions out there, and I've, I've cruised Reddit. I've, I've read everything. On Match Day, I spent a few hours myself on Reddit, trying to better understand the, the fears and thoughts and thought processes. And I think it's important for the medical students to speak out on what they want to change. Why is it something that is unpalatable for them to be in a university mm-hmm. position? And then we as leaders have to listen and say, wow, what can we do to fix this? And I think that's, that's the key. We are already seeing, at least in my market, uh, jobs opening up to a, a significant amount for our graduates, I think a, a high quality residency program. Uh, like all the chairs you've to be uh, during this meeting, are, you know, your graduates are going to have great positioning in the job market. Uh, you know, the, the RRC does govern the new programs that open. They do meet the regulatory requirements for a residency program, but we have to also look at that part of the equation too. We have hundreds of new residency positions in environments that may or may not be the best for training for all medical students. So. I would offer a word of advice to medical students that are applying to emergency medicine to carefully select programs you interview at. Ask the tough questions you want to ask. Hey, did you fill last year? Did you not fill? Why do you think that is? What changes did you make if you didn't fill? And those types of questions will allow the medical student to evaluate what the leadership is like for that program. I think we have to just be very cognizant that emergency medicine residents are here to become high-quality physicians to serve a community. They are not a commodity for scribes or fiscal productivity. That's how we have to treat them, and how we treat residents in our within our own program. And I'm optimistic that the pendulum will recenter in the coming years and the ship will be right. We, we, we do have some rocky times ahead
0: of us. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to that we're not trying to paint a picture that everything is all fine. I think if you have that approach, then people can't take it seriously and won't take it seriously. But the two points that you alluded to in this conversation just now was, and that I really want to emphasize was, listening right you mentioned earlier that how important it is to listen to your people and what you're mentioning here is listen to the medical students why they're not applying and having that conversation with them to figure out what it is that's detracting them from applying to our specialty because they're the ones you're gonna be practicing for the next 20-30 years and if there's something that is factually wrong or displeasing to our future for clinicians and physicians what can we do now to make this a better work environment and then the second thing you mentioned that I think holds true and should be our true north in our entire specialty when we make decisions is that patient care, right? You know, the financial decisions, the recruiting decisions and the various decisions should have the patient at heart and should have the patient at the center. We're all clinicians, we're all doctors, we're here to help patients and get them to be better and make their lives better and that we want to impact them in a positive way. So I appreciate you mentioning and emphasizing both of those points there where it's truly about the patient, it's the patient care, that should be the center and trying to listen to what their junior residents or the medical students are saying and want out of a specialty so we can make it an appealing career for the next 20, 30 years of their lives. And I want to now transition a little bit to some of the advice in terms of, let's talk about the residents who are getting ready to start their job search, get their first job out of residency. What advice would you provide to them as a chair? And as a former PD as well. Yes, as, as a, yeah, as a, yeah. a re- recovering PD is the
1: term <laughs> I use. You, you <laughs> don't ever... You, you don't ever lose that part of you of uh, being a program director. Number one, be the rest, best resident you can be. Uh, and that involves a lot of the small things your program coordinator really needs you to get done. Those duty hour things, licensures, merit badge courses, all those small steps, that is going to prove to a potential employer, if you have all your ducks in a row there, that you have your act together. Even if you're not the most organized person, this is a time where you send your coordinator a bouquet of flowers or something. Edible arrangements go a long way, but in all honesty, that's step one, is make sure you've got your ducks in a row when it comes to professional type aspects in your your life. Number two, know where your heart lies. And this is a hard decision for a lot of graduating residents. You're bamboozled by sign-on bonuses or postcards with, with pretty beaches on them or metropolitan areas with sports teams, or, oh, I've never even thought about living in this place that I've never heard of before. But pause about and think about what your values are. If you really need to generate a lot of revenue very quickly, I want you to pump the brakes and think about why that is. Because there's, there's plenty of money out there for any physician. We just have to be cautious on how we select, especially that first job, where you're happy, where you have professional. So know your own values. And every resident going to be different whether it's you have a family, a significant other, some residents have children, some residents want to travel the world, some residents want to pursue a fellowship. So those are all different types of thoughts that they have. But it's very hard for me to provide guidance to a resident who's looking in four major geographic areas of four different jobs and asking me which one to pick. Well, they're all different. So make sure you kind of pick a regionality or a niche if you're in academics on where you want to go next. And I think that allows for someone who's interviewing you to to fully understand that you're invested in that practice. Because when I hire someone, I want someone who's invested in my practice, invested in my community, invested in what my values are. And if our values don't align up, or I can't offer what I'm going to offer you, I'm going to be honest with you. And I'm going to coach you and try to mentor you and say, okay, maybe the the, the folks down at Emory can help you out, or or maybe at another institution. And we do that all the time as, as a collaborative group of department chairs. So... For graduating residents, especially those entering academics, kind of know what you want, but also be open to different career paths. Be open to what are the faculty development plans for junior faculty? Where do you see someone growing and succeeding? Ask the hard questions. Is there room for a, a PD or an APD job? I would like to be a medical student educator, sim director, ultrasound guru. Whatever you want, just make sure you, you're, you're honest and upfront about that. And if you're looking in, into a non-academic position, We have to just be very cognizant that the business side of emergency medicine can be swimming in a sea of sharks sometimes. So use your residency networks. Use your colleagues, your faculty. Get to know the medical director of those facilities. Remember, the the jobs that are advertised the most are oftentimes the hardest ones to fill. So just be aware. If you're getting flown across the country, wind and dine, that that's probably a tough job to fill. And you you may not always feel that way during the interview process, but the best jobs are unadvertised. This is an important part to network with your faculty and your residents and and former residents as well.
0: That was very helpful, Dr. Mendorado. Thank you so much. I think that just about wraps up our time for today as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Mendorado, once again, for sharing your time, for sharing your insight and for your advice as well. Really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Thank you for your time.